Let's start with the phrase, the best of both worlds. Anybody ever used that phrase before? I certainly have, probably a thousand times. Um, any uh, Android users out there? That was a lot more than I expected. Okay, how about the Apple fanatics? Now, what if we took the best of both worlds, we combined the best of Android with the best of Apple? Now, unless you work for Apple, you're really rejecting that idea. Um, but maybe the best sounds kind of nice, best of both, which in reality, they've been stealing ideas from each other for like 30 years. So that would be nothing new. Or uh, how about this? What if we combine the best of Ford and the best of Chevy? Now, unless you're in the Ford until I die fan club, then, you know, combining the best of both or the best of Toyota and the best of Honda and making the best sedan possible kind of sounds nice. Or how about the best of both worlds when it comes to a vacation? You know, instead of having to choose between going up to the mountains or going to the beach, what if we snowboard and ski one day and we surf the next? I mean, that sounds amazing, right? The best of both worlds. And I think we use that phrase a lot in different spheres, different avenues of our life. But there's one sphere, there's one aspect of our life that that phrase, the best of both worlds, just doesn't work. It's in our relationship with God. Now, in terms of religion... When we think of the best of both worlds, we'll use a phrase called syncretism. Syncretism means the best of both, kind of combining ideas from a, a couple different camps and trying to make one uh, together religion. And in terms of our relationship with God, it just doesn't work. Syncretism is not possible. And maybe it sounds a little bit like this. I want to believe in Jesus and I want the trend of universalism, believing that, you know, someday everybody's going to go to heaven and love wins in the end. It's all going to be okay. Or maybe it looks a little more practical. I want to believe in Jesus, but then at the same time, I, I want my, my sin, my sinful pleasures. I want to live a materialistic life. Maybe that's how it works. It's a Jesus and mentality. But that's not how it works, because when we follow Jesus, he's not just our Savior. He's also our Lord, our Savior and our Lord, and he becomes the boss of our life. And there's this idea in Christian circles, I have no idea where it came from, that when we follow Christ, we get to give him his slice of the pie. And maybe for us, it looks like, okay, I'm going to give God 10% of the money that I make. Or, yeah, I'm going to give God an hour of my time on Sunday mornings. And then maybe if I'm a really good Christian, I'm going to give him two hours of my time on Monday nights. But then the rest of the week is mine. We give God his slice of the pie, but that's not how it works. So when we follow Christ, he gets the entire thing. Our entire life revolves around Christ. But the enemy still tries to get us to buy into this lie of, of syncretism, that we can have Jesus and, that we can just give Jesus just a little bit of the pie and then keep the rest for ourselves. Now, as we're going to see in our Minor Prophets tonight, God is not okay with syncretism. He's not okay with the best of both worlds. And we see that in the prophet uh, Zephaniah. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. It is totally fine if you have to use your table of contents to find where Zephaniah is. The only reason I can find it is because I have it tabbed in my Bible. But let's go over some background to Zephaniah because it's really important. Zephaniah had royal blood. The Hezekiah that's listed in verse 1 is probably King Hezekiah, his great-great-grandfather. But it's interesting that Zephaniah was born during the reign of King Manasseh. Manasseh was the king of the two southern tribes of Judah, and Manasseh was one of the worst kings in the history of Judah who reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. 
Now, 55 years ago, now not all of us can remember 55 years ago. Fritz, I don't even see him over there, so I can't make fun of him tonight. Does anyone know who was president in 1966? Lyndon B. Johnson, LBJ. The only reason I know that is because I had to look it up. Since 1966, we have had, including President Biden, 11 different presidents. Now imagine what it would be like for the last 55 years to have one president, but not a president, a ruler, an authoritarian dictator who has no checks and balances, who has no legislative branch, who has no Supreme Court, who gets to do whatever he wants. And to make matters worse, he's just a really, really bad guy. I mean, the text in 2 Kings describes Manasseh in the vilest terms possible. He built these altars to Baal and to Asherah, not just out in the fields. He actually took them and he built them in the middle of God's temple. And then he would go to mediums and necromancers and, and fortune tellers to try to look into the future. And he was leading the people astray and, and building idols. But the worst thing that Manasseh did is he took his own son and burned him, sacrificed him on an altar to one of the foreign gods. This guy was evil. This was the king of Judah. And as the leader goes, so go the people. And those 55 years of his reign brought about more evil and more spiritual decline than any king who'd gone before him. Second Kings tells us that he was even worse than the kings of the nations that surrounded Israel, of the sinful nations. He was as bad as it gets. Zephaniah was born in the middle of the reign of King Manasseh. Well, 55 years and his reign and Manasseh passes away and his son Ammon takes the throne for two years and he is killed in a political coup. So then Ammon's son, Josiah, takes the throne. And Josiah was eight years old when he became king, which sounds like uh, it's going to be doomed, right? I mean, it sounds like a terrible idea. An eight-year-old to be king? And certainly he was just a figurehead when he started. But he and Zephaniah were contemporaries. They were there in Judah at the same time. Some think that they were even relatives. But eight years into Josiah's reign, he has a change of heart. And he looks out at this country and sees the decisions that they're making and how they're being pulled farther and farther away from the Lord. And he tears down the altars and gets rid of the idolatry. He even has all the false priests executed. And then 10 years later, when he was 26, they discovered the book of the law, Deuteronomy probably, and it brings about an even greater repentance, even greater revival in the nation of Judah. So why in the world do we go through all that background? Because that's the context of Zephaniah. Zephaniah preached his message in between Josiah's two reforms. His first reform when he was 16 brought about that initial revival and repentance, and then his second reform when Josiah was 26, 10 years later of the reading of the law. Zephaniah preached right in the middle of those two reforms. So with that, why don't we look at our text? We're just going to be in chapter 1. Let me start in verse 2, and I'll read through verse 6. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away every man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the rubble of the wicked, and I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnants of Baal. In the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, those who've turned back from following the Lord, do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. <laughs> well, it's not necessarily a happy text, is it? 
I mean, he doesn't waste any time declaring judgment of God that's going to come on the people because of their sin. But there's two words that form the foundation of this text, that form the foundation of this book. And my guess is we didn't even catch them. They're at the end of verse 5. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Milcom was a false god, the god of the Ammonites, who were their neighbors. And you see what was happening. The people, not just the people, but the priests, they were swearing by. In other words, they were worshiping God and they were declaring how great he is. But then in the next breath, they were swearing by, they were worshiping Milcom. What the people were doing is they had one foot in Christianity and following God, and they had one foot in the world, and they were trying to do both at the same time. And certainly there'd been revival, there'd been repentance, but instead of getting rid of the idolatry in their heart, instead of getting rid of the sin, and they tried to do both. They tried to, to keep their other gods while just kind of adding Yahweh into the mix. And God calls them out and says, it's not possible, you can't do that. But does that sound fair? I mean, come on, there's improvement They're getting better. I mean, things at least are better now than they were before. At least they're worshiping God. Sure, they're worshiping other gods too, but at least they're worshiping the one true God. Can't God be satisfied with better? I don't think that's how it works. Interesting text in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 3.10 says this. Yet for all her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. It's interesting, Jeremiah wrote that text years after Zephaniah, years after both of the reforms of King Josiah. But they didn't turn to me with their whole heart, but in pretense. It was a half-hearted repentance. They didn't turn to the Lord. They tried to keep one foot in the world and one foot in worshiping God. And Zephaniah is clear, Jeremiah is clear, God is clear that you can't have God and idolatry. You can't choose both. And by choosing both, then we've chosen idolatry. (laughs) Now, this might sound difficult to contextualize for us because we're probably not going to leave young adults tonight and go bow down to Baal. (laughs) We're we're not going to leave the third Monday worship service and then jam out to a, a playlist adoring Malcolm. That's not how it works. But I think this might hit a little closer to home than we might realize. Is it possible that we leave church on a Sunday morning and then go home and bow down to the NFL? Can we leave a third Monday worship service and on our playlist on the drive home or the next morning on our way to work listening to songs that are all about explicit sex? Maybe we listen to a sermon about giving like we heard a couple weeks ago. And then we leave and from church and we spend a couple hundred dollars on ourselves without even thinking twice. I think the idea of Jesus and maybe is a little closer to home than we like to admit. Because that's all syncretism is. Two words, Jesus and. The best of both worlds. We can't have Jesus and worshiping idols. We can't have Jesus and our sinful pleasures. And I'm convinced that syncretism, Jesus and, is one of the biggest problems in the church in our country today. But the Jesus and mentality is what we call a logical fallacy. It does not exist because God's clear. If we try to live with one foot in the world and one foot in Christianity, we've picked our side. 
There's no such thing as fence-sitting Christianity. That if someone is trying to sit on the fence, then they're demonstrating that they're probably not a follower of Christ. Now, if you don't believe me, if you think that's too harsh, let me read what John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. When he says don't love the world, he's talking about being in love with the priorities, the plans, the desires, the sinful culture around us. And John makes a distinction. He says, if anyone loves the world, if anyone's worshiping the sinful desires of our culture, then the love of the Father is not in him. It doesn't get much clearer than that. John's saying that person's not a follower of Christ. Now, let me be clear. John's not talking about someone who's just struggling with sin, but is grieved by it and is working towards repentance. He's not talking about a Christ follower that's not yet aware that what they're doing is wrong. No, John's talking about someone who lives with this posture of, yeah, you know, this might be wrong, but I don't think God cares. Or it's not a big deal. The Bible is just outdated. They're not fighting sin. They're loving sin and worshiping sin. Well, imagine contextualizing a, a, a passage like this about syncretism for the church in America 150 years ago or 200 years ago. What might the message be? Where was there evidence of Jesus and In 1855, some estimates suggest that ministers and members of local churches owned 600,000 slaves in 1855. Some churches even owned slaves in order to rent them out so that they could make more income. I wish that wasn't true, but it is. And I'm thankful that those are historical facts in the past, but not in the present. And we can look back in the past and say, oh my goodness, that was terrible. And how did they ever do that? Which we should, we should be appalled by that. But at the same time, if we look in the mirror at our hearts or at our culture, where might there be blind spots in our world today? And that's our big idea. We have to beware of the symptoms of syncretism and beware of the symptoms of syncretism. I wonder if Zephaniah or Jeremiah or even John, they came to young adults or they came to Highland or they came even to the American church in general, where would they find syncretism? Where would they find this Jesus and the best of both worlds? And I've got three ideas, three things that we've got to be on guard against as we fight against syncretism in our hearts and in our lives. Here's the first, Jesus and society's sexuality. Jesus and society's sexuality. That's the first symptom. In other words, I can have Jesus and my definition of sex. Because how does our culture define sexual expression? As long as consensual adults, really whatever we want it to be. But God's boundaries for morality are clear. One man, one woman, in marriage for life. That's his context for sex. But there's a growing movement within Christian culture to disregard God's teaching on morality and embrace a more modern sexual ethic. 
And friends, this is just a trendy version of Jesus and. Because here's the problem with our culture. It's turned sexual expression into a human right and connected sexuality to someone's identity. Friends, our identity is not determined by our sexuality. Our identity is determined by our Savior. And sexual expression, it's not a human right. It's a gift from God to be enjoyed within the context of a biblical marriage. But when someone believes the lie that sexuality equals identity, that sex is a human right, theologically, it it leads to a pretty slippery slope that often leads to one of two conclusions. Either the Bible's just not true, or the Bible's really outdated and we've just got to get with the times. But friends, we can't have Jesus and disregard his sexual ethic. Let me be clear. It's not Jesus and society's sexuality. It's Jesus or society's sexuality. You can't choose both. Remember back in college when I took the mandatory philosophy class, I had an assignment. I had to interview someone who had a different perspective than I did. So I talked to my professor, and he connected me with a professor at a college on the West Coast who was a graduate of the school that I went to. And since graduating from Cedarville, he had since come out, was married to another man, and was teaching at a college on the West Coast. And he held to what we might consider, what theologians would consider an affirming view of sexuality, which would hold to this, that God doesn't have any problem with a same-sex committed lifelong relationship. The Bible doesn't say that's wrong. That was his theological position. And it was my job to interview him and, and be able to have a dialogue with someone that you had a different, posi- different position with. And we had a really good conversation. But as I talked to him, I went into the conversation expecting that he would give me a long explanation of the Greek words in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 and and how Paul used them and and how they should be translated differently. I was expecting this long explanation of uh, the sexual ethic in the ancient Near East and in Greek culture and, and how it didn't match at all what was happening in our world today. That's what I was expecting. And certainly we talked about that a little bit, but that wasn't what I got. And let me paraphrase what he said, something like this. If I stand before God someday and he tells me that I was wrong in my view of sexuality, it's just not going to be that big of a deal. I'm just going to say, I'm sorry, and he'll forgive me and we'll move on because it's not a big deal. I was expecting something theological. I was expecting something that maybe he'd put before the Lord and hours of prayer But instead, in my brief interview, it was my perception that his feelings had motivated his decision. And even if he was wrong, he was hoping that God just didn't really care. Now, I'm not trying to discount his feelings or his personal experience, but instead he chose to believe a version of Jesus and, when Scripture teaches Jesus or. Maybe we can compare his statement with something else we see in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6 Verses 9 through 11 says this, one of the hardest passages. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor many who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's almost like Paul is talking right to our culture. Do you see what he said in verse 9? Sam, don't be deceived. There's going to be people that come up to you and say, hey, you can be a Christian and you can be greedy for gain. Oh, you can be a Christian. You can embrace your own sexual ethic. Oh, you can be a Christian and you can be a drunkard. It's not that big of a deal. The Bible's just kind of outdated. No, that's not really what those words mean. And Paul's warning us, don't be deceived. There's going to be people that come and they try to trick us and they try to teach us something that's contrary to God's word. And when we read this text, I mean, there's one word that jumps out at us, isn't there? Homosexuality. <laughs> and often that's what people focus on when they look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. But that's only one of multiple things listed. Maybe we can look at a couple others in the text. Adulterers and the sexually immoral. Now, many of us here tonight might not be married, so it might sound like this doesn't apply. But we have to remember that God considers any sex outside of marriage wrong. I mean, think of how our society talks about premarital sex. Ah, just give sex a try. Ah, you know, you've got to see if you're compatible. Or, you know, we're committed to each other. We're essentially married in God's eyes, so this just isn't that big of a deal. God doesn't care that much. No, friends, God's standard is clear. He's designed the boundaries for intimacy, and it doesn't include dating and engagement. But we have to understand that God's design for morality, it's not just the right way, it's the best way. As God created marriage, marriage was not man's invention. It was God's invention in Genesis 2, before the fall, when he said, man shall, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In other words, when a man and woman are married, when they come to the front of the church or their venue and they make those vows to one another before the Lord and before their witnesses, that they're going to be faithful to one another for the rest of their life, something special happens. The two become one flesh. That's God's design because marriage is the highest degree of commitment that we can have on this side of heaven. And intimacy is the highest degree of vulnerability. You can't have one without the other. And the commitment has to precede the vulnerability. Order matters. Or maybe the adultery, sexual immorality looks like an addiction to pornography, when somebody tries to convince themselves, you know, I can go to church on Sunday morning, but I can look at this the rest of the week. It's just not that big of a deal. Everybody else is doing it. It's not affecting anybody. Or God gave me these desires. How can he expect me not to fulfill them? But it doesn't work that way. It's not Jesus and our sin. It's not Jesus and society's sexuality. Now, some of those examples might be some of the most dangerous forms of syncretism in our world today that churches are buying into in our country and in our area. We've got to make sure those same thoughts don't creep into our hearts. <laughs> okay, so let me hop off the sexuality bandwagon because when we talk about syncretism, it's certainly far deeper and far broader than that. Look at a couple other things that Paul lists in this text. Greedy, swindlers, syncretism best of both worlds might sound like this. I can have Jesus and, and I can still make money, my functional savior. Or I can have Jesus and, and I can continually put my occupation in the highest place of priority in my life. I can make work my idol. I can have Jesus and, and I can live for making a profit, finding my value in how much I make or how much I'm worth. There's another one in here. How about drunkards? Now, alcohol Consumption, it might be somewhat of a gray area in Scripture, but 
Drunkenness is not. Paul's clear in Ephesians chapter 5. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, which is an important distinction. He's actually giving us the why, why that's not a good thing to do. Because when we get drunk on alcohol, we're actually giving control of ourselves to the, the substance rather than allowing the Holy Spirit to control us. That's why getting drunk is, is wrong. But this sort of syncretism, it sounds like this. I can have Jesus and, and I can still rely on alcohol to keep me afloat. Or I can have Jesus and, and I can live in a, a functional dependence on marijuana or any other substance to keep me happy and keep me going. Friends, each one of these things are what we'd call substitute saviors. Things that we might look to in our life to fill the void that only Jesus can fill. And, and that's our second principle tonight. Jesus and substitute saviors. That's our second symptom of syncretism. Jesus and substitute saviors. It's far too easy for us to look to any one of these things to fill the void in our hearts that only Jesus can fill. Maybe it's adventure. Maybe it's entertainment or a substance or, or profit. And if you were with us last week at the third Monday, Andrew used a, a word picture from Jeremiah that's kind of been rolling through my mind all week, a picture of a broken cistern. And the idea that when we're looking to pleasure or profit or anything in this world to ultimately fill us, then we're a broken cistern that can never actually hold what's filling it, always being filled but never full. That's what happens in our hearts when we look to any one of our substitute saviors for ultimate satisfaction. Well, there's another word in 1 Corinthians 6, idolaters. Sure, we might not worship Baal, but all of us are tempted toward idolatry. And to find the biggest idol in our life, all we need to do is look in the mirror. Idolatry of self. And that's our final symptom tonight, Jesus and a me-first mentality. Jesus and a me-first mentality. It sounds like this. I'll follow Jesus as long as he doesn't interrupt my priorities or my plans or my desires or my bank account or my vacations or my relationships. Because our natural bent as humans is to put ourselves in the ultimate place of priority in our life. But when we follow Christ, we give him that place. He becomes the most prominent individual in our life. He is in the driver's seat. But often, we try to be the one in control, a me-first mentality. And I think for me, practically, what does that look like? Well, it looks like one word. A me-first mentality, an idol idolatry of self looks like comfort. I think comfort might be one of the biggest barriers for us accomplishing God's will in our lives. Think of when Jesus sent out the 72 disciples. He sent them out on their own mission trip. And here's what he told them in Luke 10. Carry no money, carry no knapsack, don't carry any sandals, <laughs> Don't bring anything with you. I'm going to provide. It's basically what he's saying. Compare that with me when I go on our Mexico mission trip in June. I am not going to leave without my sunscreen, my bug spray, my earplugs, all my hepatitis vaccinations, and probably my own pillow. And if you think that I'm a diva, my suitcase is half the size of Andrew's, but that's beside the point. <laughs> or how about this? Think of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when he's talking about all of the hardships that he faced in his ministry. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers and robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger from the city, danger from the wilderness, danger from the sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship, though many a sleepless night, hunger and thirst, without food and cold and exposure. Does that sound familiar? No way does that sound familiar. When was the last time that we were cold in the middle of the night for the sake of the gospel? When was the last time our life was on the line for Jesus' work? When was the last time that we went hungry over lunch? Not because we forgot our lunch at home, but for the sake of the gospel. There's so much that we can unpack in just that one word, comfort. And we can do that a little bit in our small groups tonight. But is it possible that our addiction to comfort has been the biggest obstacle in our life of full surrender to Christ? Is it possible that's what that me first idolatry of self has looked like in our hearts? That maybe we've decided, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus as long as he doesn't interrupt my priorities, as long as I can still make six figures someday, as long as I don't have to move to another country to be a missionary, as long as I can kind of keep my life comfortable, then sure, I'll follow Jesus. Think of what Jesus said to his followers. If anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Hear what Jesus is saying? He's not saying, hey, come follow me. You're going to have a happy life. You're going to have a prosperous life. You're going to have a healthy life. You're going to have all kinds of friends to be popular. No, Jesus is saying, if that we want to follow him, that it could lead us right to our own execution. Following Jesus does not equal our comfort. Well, allow me to make just a couple of quick caveats and clarifications, because these are really important. I don't want you to miss them, so don't tune this out. First, I'm not suggesting that we somehow become a Christian by what we do, that we've got to live a perfect life. We've got to get rid of all the sin in our hearts before we can decide to follow Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. We're not saved by what we do. We're not saved by being perfect. We're saved because Jesus was perfect on our behalf, that there's nothing on our own that we could ever do to earn salvation and to cry out to God. He initiates that work in our hearts by the power of the Spirit, and we respond to his free gift of salvation with repentance and faith. Repentance, it's turning away from our old way of life, faith, believing that Jesus died for us. None of us are saved by what we do. And that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it might be one of the most intense passages in the New Testament, but I also think it's one of the most encouraging. Did you hear what Paul said in verse 11 after he listed all kinds of sins? He said, and such were some of you. Would we look at that list? (laughs) Do any of those sins describe the way that we used to live our life? Absolutely. But none of them are unforgivable. None of them are beyond the scope of the cross. We were washed. Our, our slate was wiped clean. We were sanctified. In other words, we were made holy and we were justified. We were declared righteous in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What a cool picture. Even if those things are in our past, it doesn't define our present and our future. It doesn't mean we can't be forgiven. And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you've been kind of walking the line, believing the lie that it's even possible to be a fence-sitting Christian. Have one foot in the world, one foot in the church, 
Friends, it doesn't work. The text is clear that if we're going to try to sit on the fence, we've actually chosen, and it's not choosing Jesus. And the solution is, well, the result is clear. I mean, look at Zephaniah chapter 1. God's wrath is coming on those who try to sit on the fence. God's wrath is coming on those who are wicked and are evil and rebellious. We talked about that from Nahum a couple of weeks ago. But what's the solution? The solution is chapter 2, Zephaniah 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, who seek righteous, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the Lord. I love those three words, seek the Lord. It's a picture of repentance, of turning away from our old way of life, of hopping off the fence and of following Christ. Is it possible today that you don't know Christ? That you've been believing the lie that you can sit on the fence? Now, if that's you, turn away from your sin. Embrace Christ for your salvation. He is the only way that we can be saved. But I think for all of us, whether we've known Christ for a a year or decades, we're all still going to struggle with what I'll call lowercase s syncretism. Because the enemy is going to try to get us to believe the lie that we can have the best of both worlds. It's called sin. None of us are going to be perfect as we walk the Christian life. So as we combat the temptation towards syncretism in our life, I've got three ideas on how we can fight that together. So here's the first. How can we fight syncretism in our life? The first is we have to know that Jesus is better, which sounds basic, but if we step back and analyze the nature of sin, every time we sin, we're believing a lie. We're believing the lie that the temporary pleasure of sin is better than Christ. The joy that this Sin, this pleasure brings, is greater than the joy that I can find in Christ. The pleasure, earthly pleasure of this, this sin is actually going to give me greater joy than what I'll find in eternity. Every time we give in to sin, we're believing the lie, whether we recognize it or not, that sin is better than Jesus. So next time we're facing temptation, let's combat the temptation with that simple phrase, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than sin. Having a relationship with him will bring us more lasting joy than sin could ever promise. That's the first. Here's the second. We need to look in the mirror. We need to look in the mirror. And as Christians, the mirror is God's word. That's how James describes it. We look in the mirror, and it reveals things about us. You know, imagine tomorrow morning I wake up, I've got a horrible bed, I had a five o'clock shadow. I look in the mirror, and I, ah, not a big deal, and I do nothing to address this major problem, and then I come to work. That'd be dumb, right? And I'd also get made fun of at work. That's what James is telling us when we read the Bible, when our heart is convicted, and then we say, ah, whatever. I'm not really going to listen to this. When we read God's word, conviction is good, but we can't stop there. We've got to allow the conviction to initiate change in our hearts. And I'm presupposing that you're spending time in God's word, which probably isn't a good assumption. Friends, we've got to be spending time with God and his word. What would it look like for us to take the next step and, and spend time in his word this week? You know, if, if all of our Bible intake is just the version verse of the day, then it's time to take the next step. 
read a chapter a day. If all of our Bible intake is just a devotional that somebody else has written, it's time to take the next step. Maybe spend time reading a chapter a day. Maybe start in a book like Matthew or a book like John in the New Testament. We've got to be spending time in God's Word. Finally, we've got to let somebody in. Let somebody in. We need to let a brother or sister into our heart that can ask us the deep questions, that can help expose our blind spots, which means we've got to give somebody permission. Got to give a brother or sister, a mentor, a leader permission to ask whatever question that they want to ask. And they can sound like a, a lot of different things. Maybe it sounds like this. Now, how was your time with the Lord this past week? Or, man, Sam, you haven't quite seemed as joyful lately. What's going on in your heart? How are you doing fighting temptation? When was the last time that you shared the gospel with someone? How are you practicing discipleship in your home? I mean, those are intense questions. We need to give someone the opportunity to ask those in our life to expose some of the blind spots in our heart to fight against the syncretism. So we've got to know that Jesus is better. We've got to look in the mirror. We've got to let somebody in. Let's work together to fight the temptation towards syncretism this week. Let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, it's always good to be together as a young adults family. I'm thankful for your grace and your kindness toward us, that regardless of the sin that might be in our past, that when we turn to Christ for our salvation, the cross covers all sin. What a gift that we can be forgiven and cleansed. Remind us of your forgiving grace tonight. So, Father, as we spend some time dialoguing in our small groups, we ask that you might convict our hearts, that it might be both a challenging and encouraging time as we unpack these truths a little bit further. In Jesus' name.